Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. The closer we get to school, the fuller the sanctuary gets. So we're grateful for that here this morning. Uh, Let us pray before we get into God's Word this morning. Father in heaven, we do come before you as your people. We are a needy people, and we need to hear your Word. We need to be reminded of your goodness and your grace, your person and work, all that you do for our salvation. And we pray that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear this morning, this message, and that you would also give us the boldness and mouths to proclaim it to those around us this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our minds are extraordinary things. We cannot even begin to fathom the depth, the abilities, and the workings of our own minds. It's beyond us. They are truly miraculous. They are a gift from God, our gracious Creator. Listen to these words by Dr. Huguenier. He says this about memory. Memory is all about connections. When we learn something, even as simple as someone's name, we form connections between neurons in the brain. These synopses create new circuits between nerve cells, essentially remapping the brain. The sheer number of possibilities, the sheer number of connections is unfathomable. The brain has 100 billion nerve cells. And each one of these can do 10,000 connections. Can you imagine? That's our mind. These synopses get stronger or weaker depending on how often we use them, what they're exposed to. The more we expose an activity, like a golfer practicing his swing a thousand times, the stronger the connections get. But less exposure means they become weaker and the connection begins to fade. It's hard to remember even people's names. So we want to learn more about what it means to remember, how to strengthen our synopses of the mind, particularly when it comes to our spiritual synopses. We want to remember Christ Jesus. We are taught throughout Scripture the importance of remembering things. John in his first epistle talked about what we have seen from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and held with our hands, what we have touched. This is what we make known to you. This is a remembrance of them as disciples, as John is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he shares that. And the more he shares that, the more it comes to mind. His remembrance is used not only for his own benefit, but the benefit of others to hear the good news of the gospel. Well, this isn't the only passage that talks about remembrance. Our passage here in 2 Timothy will talk about it. But throughout Scripture, it has been used time and time again. Think about the people of Israel. Think about the Passover. Exodus 12 talks about this on the night that 
before they are to leave Egypt and be delivered out of, the, out of slavery, they are told this, to take the Passover. And when your children say to you, what does it mean? What does this service mean? You tell them it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Think about Mount Sinai when the word of the Lord is given. There's thunders, there's lightnings all around the top and the people are fearful. But that too became an object lesson. In Deuteronomy, before they're about to enter the promised land, Moses reminds the people of Israel in the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, when your son asks in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the law of the Lord? And he says, you will tell your children this, we were Pharaoh's slaves, and he delivered us out of Egypt with a mighty right hand. But probably the most convincing of these is the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. The first Passover spoke about remembering God's commandment, God's word and work, as did the second. And now he gets to the crossing of the Jordan. God was concerned about the people's forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. So Joshua instructed them as they crossed the Jordan and it was dried up, each of the leaders of the 12 tribes was to take a stone out of the dry riverbed and make a pile, a stack of these stones. It was to be a memorial, a remembrance for the people of Israel. When your children ask, here's that phrase yet again, what do these stones mean? These stones mean when we passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones will be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. This morning we want to look at remembering Jesus Christ. And there's going to be three points that we're going to walk through this morning. Remember Jesus Christ or remember the gospel because Jesus is the gospel. And remember the gospel's power and its purpose. And then remember Jesus' faithfulness. Those are the three points that we have this morning. We want to look at these to strengthen our synopses this morning in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Well, the last few weeks I've been talking about and using an illustration of track team the 4x400 relay to be specific. And it's because these characteristics of these athletes parallel that of the Christian life. We need speed and the, the athlete needs speed and endurance. We need a sense of urgency and perseverance in the Christian faith. And like that of last week, we need the devotion of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and the diligence of the hardworking farmer. And we need to use those things, our devotion, our discipline, and diligence to remember Jesus Christ. These characteristics are necessary, but so too is remembering. Think about this, a race is about to happen, or any other type of sporting event or competition. The teacher or the coach has one final word. Those words tend to be 
mental preparation, that of remembrance. So the track team, the four runners that are going to run this race, he's probably going to say to them, now remember, when you're in the blocks, be patient. Wait for the starter's gun. And then when you bust out of the blocks and you start the race, remember, you need to run straight. You need to be the center of your lane, not weaving back and forth, staying between the lines, because the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. You need to run straight and true. And then he says, remember, when you come to that exchange, remember your mark on the track, mentally speaking, where you're going to tell that other runner, go! And he or she is going to go. And that person, remember, you're not going to look back. You're simply going to place that hand out. You're going to trust your teammates going to put that baton in your hand. And runner putting the baton in the hand, don't let go of it. Let them take it out of your hand. These are the types of things that a coach is going to say, remember these things. There's preparation. All the training, all the diligence of the runners is coming to fruition. They need that remembrance to execute. So too do we need remembrance. Remember Jesus Christ. Now some of us hear that phrase, that command that Paul is giving to Timothy and we go, you know, if we're honest, (laughs) that's a little bit silly. I mean, how do you forget Jesus? I, I mean, most of us are told when we're a little kid, if you're asked questions in Sunday school, just say Jesus. Okay, the answer is Jesus. So how do we forget Jesus? How do we forget? Well, we can forget very easy. Parents, parents with children. How many times have you looked to your children and you said, I need you to do this? And you give them the command of what they're supposed to do. A little bit later, they come up and you say, hey, did you get this done? No, I forgot. And you get a little bit upset at that. Remembrance is important. Now, it doesn't happen with just kids. It happens to us too, right? Hey, honey, where's my keys? I can't find my sling glasses. All these different things come up that we forget. I don't know where my phone is, the checkbook, mom, my homework, all these different things. The problem is we get easily distracted by the things that are around us. That's the problem. Something is said to us from the Word of God, we'll leave here this afternoon and we'll forget it when the application needs to be applied next week. We need to remember Jesus Christ. We are forgetful people. The hymn, Come Thou Fount, reminds us of this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The answer, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We need to remember. But we also need to ask this one question. Why is Paul asking Jesus, I mean, asking Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. It's not just because the children of Israel were forgetful in the Old Testament. It's not just that we're forgetful. 
It's because of what is at stake. What is at stake? You see, what's at stake is the glory of God and the souls of men. The glory of God and the souls of men. That's what's at stake. We are talking about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Lord willing, Titus. These are books that deal with discipleship. It, it deals with how we make people Christ learners. It's probably a better way to put discipleship. Discipleship can be very vague. This is very specific. When I share the gospel with someone, a word of scripture to someone, I am making them a Christ learner. Whether they receive it or not, I'm passing on the information. A child goes to school, sits in the classroom. The teacher up front is teaching a subject. And when he he or she is teaching that subject, she is making them learners. Now, whether they receive it or not is not her responsibility or his responsibility. But she is carrying out the task that she is to do or he is to do. So it's what's at stake. We want to make Christ learners among the souls of men for the glory of God. Well, Paul also wants Timothy to remember Jesus Christ because the Christian life is hard. It's hard. Who here thinks the Christian life is easy? No takers. Good brothers and sisters. Gold star for you. You're remembering Jesus Christ already. It's hard. The Christian life is one of suffering. But if we, like Timothy, are going to guard this deposit of the gospel, if we're going to pass it on to future generations, making men and women faithful to trust, to entrust with the gospel, it is important. It's important that we remember Christ Jesus. The next question for us is, how exactly do we remember Christ Jesus, this being our first point. How do we remember Christ Jesus? Our text in verse 8 says that we remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. John Stott says this, it's not just because these facts constitute the gospel which Timothy is to preach. But they also illustrate from Jesus Christ's own experience the principle that the dead, that death is a gateway to life and suffering is the path to glory. And these two phrases, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, illustrate or put together the whole of the gospel from both the New Testament and the Old Testament combined. Paul does something remarkable here as well. He directs our eyes, if you are an observant person, in the reading of this letter. Eleven times in Second Timothy, Paul will say, Christ Jesus. Eleven times. Only once, and that's here in verse 8, does he say, Jesus Christ. That should get our attention. We, we should go, oh, hey, this is interesting. God's trying to make a point here. Remember Jesus Christ. H- have you ever been taught this little 
secret or, if you will, this trick. If you meet someone for the first time, you attach an adjective to their name. Jumping John, glad, gala. (laughs) Delightful Daisy. Okay, exciting Ed. All right, you you attach an adjective to the front and then you remember it. So Paul does something here through his writing. All throughout, he's talking about Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. These are what Christ has done and what he will do throughout this letter. But here, he reverses it to capture our attention, to help us to see how important it is to remember Jesus Christ. In these two aspects, risen from the dead and offspring of David. And it's not by happenstance that he reverses the, the names. Jesus is his given name. means Savior. But it was given to him by Joseph and Mary. It speaks about his humanity. On the flip side, Christ is the word for Messiah in the Old Testament, the anointed one. It speaks of Christ's divinity. The promises of the Old Testament are given to us. Speaking of the Messiah in the Greek just translates it Christ. And so Christ matches up with offspring of David. Jesus matches up with risen from the dead. Now risen from the dead is a, is a phrase that people in the first century would have been familiar with. It, it would have been considered shorthand. If you go to a court building and you're there watching a case, you'll know that there's someone up, a court reporter. And, and you'll go, how are they even capturing everything that's said? They, they've got this little box, you know, like this big, and it's only got a few buttons. But it's shorthand that they're putting in there, and then they translate it later. Risen from the dead is shorthand for Jesus' incarnation, for his perfect life lived, for his suffering as a human being, for his sacrificial death on our behalf, for his real burial, for his resurrection, and also for his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Risen from the dead has everything to do with the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we have in that little phrase, risen from the dead, if you would have said that in the first century to a Christian, they would have gone, that's the gospel, right there. And it's important, this statement, risen from the dead, because the resurrection proved the message of the gospel. It demonstrated the power of the gospel. It raised Christ from the dead. It also ensures us of our own bodily resurrection to come. And finally, it invites others that don't know Christ to a spiritual resurrection when the gospel is proclaimed to them, when you give the gospel to them. So Jesus is risen from the dead. Then we have Christ, offspring of David. As I mentioned during the baptism, we are a people that believe in the covenant and covenant theology. God has spoken throughout Scripture of His covenant. It's the way He has revealed Himself to humanity through the covenants. And it's an unconditional covenant for the most part. God makes the promise and God keeps 
the promise. And the promises are made to his people. It connects the reader with these promises. And one would have seen offspring of David, and if they would have known their Old Testament scriptures, they would have said that's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. The promise made to David by God that one of your descendants will be on your throne, catch this, forever or for eternity. It wasn't going to be just any old son. He had Solomon. He had Absalom. He had several other sons. All of those died. But not this one. This one would reign over his people forever. Speaking of Jesus Christ. The memory of Jesus Christ invites the believer to see Jesus as the culmination of God's plan of salvation that we might bow down and worship Him as King with great gratitude. This should fill us with a cascade of messianic promises that are made that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and that His resurrection, raised from the dead, then gives Him all authority in heaven and earth where He is both Jesus, Christ, Savior, and King. This is the gospel, like I said, in summary form. Isn't it amazing? Paul is wanting us to remember because, and wants Timothy to remember because we're prone to forget. But it's interesting that he also gives us the sacraments. John Stott said this in his commentary for this particular passage. Though the epitaph over Israel's grave was they soon forgot, and it was to overcome our forgetfulness of Christ crucified that Jesus deliberately institutes, according to His providence and His covenant, the Lord's Supper as a little fragrant forget-me-not. You ever get flowers, ladies? Well, men, I guess you could get flowers too. You ever get flowers and there's a little note on it? Someone giving appreciation for who you are, what you've done? There used to be a campaign by one of the florist companies, forget-me-not, was a tagline. But every week, we remember Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper. This week, we got to remember Him through the baptism, what He does, His person and His work. Well, let's move on to remembering the gospel's power and purpose. We remember Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The offspring of David speaks of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Now we remember the gospel's power and purpose. And if we look at this, we look at it in terms of verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. This is the power of the gospel. You cannot keep the gospel from spreading. Paul is in the maritime prison. I've described that this, uh, before. It's, it's like carved out of the rock. It's underground. There's a little hole in the roof for air to pass in and out of. And he is chained. 
he is imprisoned. He knows the only release that he's going to have is to be walked outside of town and killed. His life is coming to an end. But here he's saying that the gospel is not bound. Well, what does he mean by that? Think about his letter to the Philippians. He talks about the progress of the gospel in the letter of the Philippians and how it brings us great joy despite hardship, suffering, affliction. In chapter 1, he recounts that though he is in prison, the gospel is going forward. Whether the people mean him harm by proclaiming the gospel, thinking that'll get him more punishment, or those who are just being bold because Paul was bold to preach the gospel. Either way, it goes forth. Whether he's in prison or not in prison, the gospel still goes forth. So listen, think about that for just a moment. The gospel goes forth. It's not bound. It's not chained. You go to the grocery store, the gospel in you goes with you. You go to school, the gospel's with you. You go to another country, the gospel is with you. You can, you can proclaim it anywhere. There's not a prison that the gospel can hold, uh, the, that the gospel can be held out of. There's prison ministries. This is the power of the gospel. It will never die. It, it, it doesn't matter what you do. The gospel cannot be bound. Kit Hughes gets a great illustration of, of how incredible God is to the faithfulness of the gospel going forth. He talks about in the 1930s when Stalin was over Russia, that he ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers. Didn't want Christianity at all. And there was a town, Stravropol. I hope I'm saying that right, Greg. <laughs> Stravropol. And it was in this place that this order was taken out with just an absolute vengeance. But after communism fell, an organization called Co-Mission went to Russia to pass out Bibles, to give the gospel. They had some logistical problems between Moscow and where they were. And it was interesting where they were. They were in Stravropol. And when they were gathered there, they didn't have Bibles. Someone goes, you know, I remember a long time ago, Stalin had all these Bibles that were taken. I think they're being kept in a warehouse. You know where the warehouse is? Yeah, it's over here. I'll show you. So they go to this warehouse and they get some, some laborers from the town to go with them. And they find the Bibles. And there's a young man that's with them that lived in the city. He was skeptical. He was hostile to Christians. He was an agnostic. He was a college student, a little bit arrogant. And he was just there because he was going to get paid for that day. Move some boxes. Well, they look around. The young man has disappeared. They don't know where he's gone. And they go looking for him. They find him over in the corner. They find him over in the corner of the warehouse, weeping profusely. This young man stole the Bible, and he wanted to take it with him, and he didn't want anybody to know. 
And when he opened it up, there was a signature inside the Bible. It was his grandmother's signature. The Word of God that his grandmother received through the Bible, that she studied. She was a faithful Christian, according to this young man. That Bible was confiscated and it was locked up. But Paul says the gospel is not bound. It might have for several decades, but it broke out again and it found the grandson. What a powerful testimony to the Word of God being unbound, unchained. This young man came to faith in Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. So there's the power, but also the purpose. The purpose of the gospel. We see this in verse 10. Paul is saying, I'm suffering for the gospel because it's powerful. It changes lives. It doesn't matter that I'm bound in chains, which is really quite ironic. Because when you think about Paul before the Damascus Road, he is the one that carried off Christians to be bound and to be imprisoned. And now it's his time. But he is optimistic about the gospel. Paul is very much so. And he knows the power of it, but he also knows the purpose of it. He says, I endure everything. All of this I am enduring for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is what I said was at stake, the glory of God and the souls of men. Paul knew that. There is a bigger purpose than just us getting saved. That's glorious, that thought in and of itself. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing better than to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we have to look outside of ourselves. We're not the only ones here. There are people all around us. Paul knew that. That those that God had chosen before the foundation of the world, God would ordain and through providence bring the word to those people. Election does not save people. What it does is it does make fruitfulness for us when we deliver the gospel to others. It ensures that those who are to be saved will be saved. But it doesn't save in and of itself. The gospel, the means of grace is still required. And Paul knew that. Paul wanted these people to have the salvation that he had and the eternal glory that comes with it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. And I commend it to you, although I will admit that I had to read it three times to understand it. And then, here's the little side note. You can go to the Gospel Coalition and you can say, Justin Taylor, Weight of Glory. Okay, and he gives you kind of the cliff notes of it so you can really understand it. So I read it four times. But here is, here is something that I want you to think about. Because I think C.S. Lewis captures what Paul is thinking about. When it's, what's at stake? The glory of God and the souls of men. But that glory is, as Paul talks about in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But here's what Lewis talks about in the way, 
in the weight of glory. He said it may be possible for us to think too much about our own potential glory in the afterlife. However, it is impossible to think too often or too deeply about the potential glory of our neighbor. You ever think of that? The potential glory of your neighbor. He says, this load, this weight, this burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. It should be a heavy load that I require the grace of God to carry. He says it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible little g gods and little g goddesses. He says to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. Have you ever looked at humanity like that? What Lewis is saying, what Paul is saying, is all around you are people that will be glorified in Christ or they will be damned to hell. And your responsibility, that burden that you carry is the gospel of Jesus Christ to take it out. Who knows who your neighbors are that will be glory or glorious. He concludes with this thought. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. There are mortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Does that motivate you? Does that encourage you? Does that well up in you and get you excited that if I give the gospel, these glorified ones are going to say, I trust Jesus. What an amazing thought. The power of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. Let's conclude by looking at remembering Jesus' faithfulness. This comes in verses 11 through 13. This is either an old hymn or an affirmation of faith, perhaps most commentators believe it's probably a hymn. It's four conditional statements. You'll see if we leads each one of these remarks. And I don't want to get too caught up in, in grammar, but I think in this particular case, the grammar becomes very important that, that you understand it. This first phrase, if we've died with Him, we will also live with Him. The verb there, if we died, is in the aorist tense. This phrase speaks of conversion. Aorist means something has happened at a particular point of time, in time, The ramifications carry on into the future. When someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved, or we will say they are justified before God because of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, that particular conversion happens at a moment in time and it carries on into the future. So 
if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Future tense. It is talking about the great purpose of God which is to come, the resurrection. The next one, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Endure is in the present tense. So I'm now converted. Now the second phrase has to do with perseverance. I continue and continue. I keep on keeping on, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. I am preserved by God. I'm given the endurance. And if I do this, if I endure with Christ by His strength and by His grace, I will reign with Him. There again, future. Think about it. We're not only going to live with Him, we're going to reign with Him in glory. And then third, this third statement. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. It's interesting that if we deny Him is in the future tense. means it can happen sometime in the future. This isn't talking about the person that has been converted in the first clause, the one that perseveres in the second clause. This is exactly what Timothy is dealing with. Hermogeles and Philetus, those that have abandoned the faith. At some point, people will profess their faith. It is either a true profession of faith or they are what we call a nominal Christian. Yeah, I say it, but I don't really believe it. I don't really live it. I don't trust in Jesus' person and work. That person at somewhere along the line, the author of Hebrews says, we need to endure and hold our confession to the end. It's not a one-time thing. When the going gets tough, those get going. The believer in Christ doesn't have to worry about this. We have the assurance of salvation. It's those who don't. They are and will be tempted to fall away because they are not one of Christ's own. And if they do, Christ will deny them. Matthew chapter 7, many will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name? Did I not do that in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. That's a warning. For those that are here that don't know Jesus Christ, they can't even, even imagine what it means to remember Jesus Christ. The gospel's for you. It really is. You receive it by faith. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God that He is both man and He is both God. That He lived a life that I can't live, that I, that I fail at all the time. And yet He laid His life down. His death paid for the penalty of my sin. The wages of sin is death. But death couldn't hold Him because there's power in the gospel and there's purpose in the gospel. And so God raises him from the dead. And just as he raises him from the dead, he raises you, new believer, in Jesus Christ so that you can have the hope of glory. Finally, he does say if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Images should go through our minds of Peter. Before the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, I will die for you. 
And what does Peter do? He denies him three times before the rooster crows. We're faithless all the time. All the time. Listen to Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a Puritan. He is one of the authors of the Confession of Faith. He was just a godly man. But even listen to what he says. Often and often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. But blessed be his name, he keeps it safe in heaven and he stands by it always. Though I am faithless, he is faithful. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This speaks of conversion, perseverance, a warning of apostasy, but the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember Jesus Christ and His gospel. But we also need to have a vision for the lost, for the elect, for those who are around us. We need to believe and trust in the power of the gospel. We need to share the gospel. I I, I know it's scary. I know it can be terrifying to think of sharing the gospel with someone. But it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. What we're doing through this vine process in the making of disciples, the making of Christ learners, is we want to keep it simple. We simply want to say a word to someone. Hand them a book. Give them something that will help them to take just one step to the right. To get them a little bit closer to Jesus. Invite them to coffee. Ask what you can pray for them for. One more step to the right. Invite them to join you and some other believers here at Trinity to go out and have a meal together, talk about life, and give gospel principles in that conversation. One more step to the right. Invite them to a community group where you're gathered together as fellow believers, that you're opening up the Scriptures, learning about Christ together, and then praying together. And they hear the gospel. They see it on display. One more step to the right. At some point in time, with all these consecutive steps to the right, you may plant the seed, you may water, someone else may reap the harvest. But the church as a whole is going to give the gospel to this individual or individuals, getting them to move ever closer. How many of you have a testimony? that you don't know the very second and minute and hour of a particular day when you express faith in Christ. You just know it was some kind of continuum. Once you didn't believe and now you believe. That's what we're trying to do here. Get people to take one step to the right. I'm going to close with this. Aesop's fables. There's a fable that has a great principle It's called the North Wind and the Sun. You may know this. The North Wind and the Sun were quarreling about which one of them was stronger. 
While they were disputing with much heat and bluster, a traveler passed along the road wrapped in a cloak. Let us agree, said the son, that he that is stronger is the one who can strip that traveler of his cloak. Very well, said the north wind, and at once he sent a cold, howling, blasting against the traveler, which every gust that made the coattails of his coat flap in the wind, the traveler just simply grabbed his coat and tied it tighter around him. The north wind, with anger, gave up. Then it was the sun's turn. The sun began to shine. At first, his beams were gentle, and then the pleasant warmth after the cold wind was pleasant. The traveler unfastened his coat and gladly took it off. The moral of the story is this. Gentleness and kind persuasion win where force and bluster fail. Let us keep this principle in mind when we share the gospel with others. Go out this week. Try to help one person take one step toward Jesus Christ, remembering Jesus Christ all the while. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you would make us Christ learners, (laughs) that you would save wretches like us that you would bring us to yourself and then through your word, through the sacraments, through other believers, encouraging us through the word of God, cause us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, his power and his purpose in the gospel and his faithfulness to help us endure to the end. All of this we gladly give you praise for. In Jesus' name, amen.